Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. A theme that we have touched on several times on this podcast is the contentious boundary between architecture and art. In earlier episodes, we saw how Adolf Loos famously wished to keep them separate and distinct, classifying architecture not as fine art, but as craft. Rooted in the common ground that van de Velde and Motesius espoused for the Werkbund, Walter Gropius explicitly founded the Bauhaus to unify the realms of art and architecture. His first choice for a faculty member at the Bauhaus was the man we will focus on today, the painter and composer Lionel Feininger, whose strong idealist convictions about art speak volumes about Gropius's intent for the school. Differences in emphasizing either a separation or union of art and craft lead easily to divisive consequences in architectural practice. The fine art partisans, to give a case, would tend to advocate so-called progressive iterations of new form and materials in an effort to stay at the head of the avant-garde's curve. The craft side of the debate might, in the words of Loos, maintain that changes to the old way of building are permissible only if they represent an improvement. Otherwise, leave everything as it is. And even despite this divide, both camps share common philosophical foundations. So let us begin with a recap. Art and craft are distinct in that art seeks to reach beyond function while craft is subordinate to it. Art casts light on the creative individual, while craft will often anonymize the creator and is mainly about clients and consumers. Art is typically kept in a frame, physical or conceptual, and prized for being outstanding. It should warrant analysis, in the casual observer's brief comment, or in a critic's monograph. Craft succeeds most when it becomes invisibly blended into everyday habits, the analysis of which comes from the enthusiast or historian who temporarily frames the object before it is returned to daily life, enriched with new perspective. And as we have thus far seen in just this tiny slice of 20th century architecture, art can be treated like craft and craft like art, hence the fierce arguments about which path is preferable for the built environment. If we take a step back, though, we can see both art and craft share common underpinnings in their execution. Despite consequential distinctions, both approaches are a basic part of the human creative process. As such, the process of creation shares the sequential path starting at need and or circumstance and moving on through inspiration, conceptualization, 
and the physical-mental dialogue of execution that ends with the decision to finish, frame, or deliver the artwork or craft. In observing this common process, we come up against an old acquaintance, dualism. Boiling down centuries of debate that stretch from present-day controversies in neuroscience to at least back to Plato and his forms, and existing wherever humans believed there was more to the world than what our senses provided, dualism simply stands for the distinction between inside and out. According to this scheme, there is an objective outer world of physical things and consequences, and a mostly subjective inner realm of reason, passion, and imagination. Our senses and language are mercurial faculties that seem to travel between those worlds. As for art and craft, they result in outer objects as the artifacts of inner processes, liminal, in that they are tied to the objective and subjective in equal measure. So when these created objects are successful or memorable, they can serve as links or triggers between the outer and inner worlds of the receiver and their creators. Lionel Feininger grew up with these concepts, theological connotations expressly included, swirling in his childhood's intellectual fester but they were brought to him neither by architecture nor by painting. In his upbringing, these ideas stemmed from the world of music, thought to be the least physical of art forms, and the one philosophers considered as being nearest to the inner realm. If architecture is the practice that is not only closest to the physical, but its embodiment, we could say Feininger's view on the creative process had been set to maximum scope, just what Gropius would have wanted for his school. Feininger's parents were professional musicians. Karl Friedrich Feininger, a violinist, came to the United States as a child, his parents fleeing the Germanys with many other families who had supported the ultimately lost constitutional cause during the revolutions of 1848. He married Elizabeth Cecilia Lutz, a singer and pianist born in New Jersey to German immigrant parents of a similar background to his. In the United States, the late 19th century was a time in which hysteria over the cultural and economic consequences of immigration was yet more shrill than ours today. Most immigrants had not yet shed their native languages, and the sizable German population determinedly preserved its linguistic and cultural heritage with German-language newspapers, schools, and the Turnvereine mustache-sporting, male-only exercise clubs whose official activities included a cappella singing and, to the horror of upstanding Yankee citizens, beer festivals. Feininger was born at St. Mark's Place in the Bowery slum of Manhattan 
1871, the year that most of Chicago was incinerated in a firestorm, and in which a unified German state was proclaimed in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. With both parents touring the world on concert, the family frequently moved to various locations within Manhattan, sometimes boarding the children in Connecticut with friends. Feininger's world was a consistent cultural borderland. While he lived in the States, he was a very German American, and when in Germany, he was always der Amerikaner. His journey across the ocean was planned out early, when at the age of nine he started learning violin. By thirteen, he was performing in public and his father intended for him to study in Leipzig, as he had. At about this time, his parents pulled him out of New York's public school number 69 because of concerns for his health. Though it was well past the era of New York's rampant cholera, epidemics still laid waste to the city at regular intervals. In the 1880s, more than 10,000 New York citizens died from diphtheria alone, a number comparable to that of the New Yorkers who died of AIDS in the 1980s. The generation of architects that would give worker housing such an antiseptic and hygienic feel with the air, light, and sunshine model were the children who survived these final rounds of 19th century urban epidemics. Feininger joined the ranks of the employed at age 15, a situation common to most boys of his age at the time. He worked as a messenger boy in a Wall Street stock brokerage run by a friend of his father's. While his parents were out of the country on extended tours, he was commuting into Manhattan six days a week from Plainfield, New Jersey, which in those days still meant taking a train every morning for more than 20 miles to the Hudson River, and then waiting for a ferry. His earliest artistic endeavors involved drawing boats and trains with his childhood friend, Frank Cortoyer. Seascapes, trains, and boats would figure prominently in Feininger's painting and sculpture throughout his life. The friends built model boats that they would sail at the pond in Central Park, and during his first year living in Berlin, Feininger was sending postcards still adorned with drawings of trains. We have posted one of these on our site. The inevitable journey to Leipzig, the city of Bach, took Feininger across the Atlantic in 1887. Despite several attempts, he would not return to the U.S. for more than 50 years. When he arrived in Leipzig, a twist of fate had it that his intended violin teacher was away for the semester. Rather than be idle for months, the then 16-year-old took it upon himself to travel nearly halfway across Germany to Hanover, where he attended the local Gewerbschule, or vocational craft school. Studying art and illustration, he was quickly skipped ahead to the upper-level classes. The year 1888 had him moving to Berlin, where he enrolled at the Royal Academy of Art, the same institution that would later dismiss Kurt Schwitters as untalented, and studied there for two years. 
During this time, his mother separated from his father after a tour of Brazil. She managed to join him in Germany's capital in the boarding house Pension Müller at number 16 Unter den Linden, at the heart of the imperial district, surrounded by the university, several museums, and some of the most notable works by architect Karl Friedrich Schinkel. The young artist received his first notoriety here, as many of his fellow pensioners were illustrators for humoristische Blätter, literally, funny pages, a satirical newspaper that had begun in Vienna. Cheaper methods of printing and lithography, even color lithography, had made these 19th century collections of cartoons and cheeky pop news a mass media hit. In a 1910 essay, Karl Krauss would lambast these feuilletons as furnishing casual readers everywhere with the most agreeable excuses for avoiding literature. While Feininger excelled as a cartoonist and even helped define the idiom, he would soon chafe against the constraints that such a career imposed on an artist. Much of his early success and all of his earnings came from commercial illustration. He had married, divorced, and married again by 1908, with the newspaper commissions providing income for both of his wives, all of their children, and his mother. The Chicago Sunday Tribune noticed the success of the feuilleton model and, ironically, promoted a famous German artist, our very own expat New Yorker, to play to the immigrant demographic. Feininger's character-driven illustrations, several of which are posted on our site, would become highly influential with some of them bearing a suspicious resemblance to Chris Ware's graphic novel Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth, which came nearly a century later. Feininger was unwilling to travel to the States until his divorce finalized, as a result of which the Chicago Sunday Tribune canceled his contract in 1906. The various German periodicals and the French paper Le Témoin kept him employed, but eager to expand his horizons, he visited Paris's art world, where the broad strokes and expressive garishness of the Fauvist, or wild style, was at its cusp. Only months prior, Ambrose Vollard had sent the painter Derain to London in what turned out to be a brilliant PR move. The expedition generated several of the paintings labeled as Fauvist by scholars today. This was the context in which Feininger became acquainted with the artists who frequented the Café du Dôme, mostly German students of Matisse and Delaunay. From Paris, he wrote to his friend Richard Goetz, The paintings of the artists with whom I was acquainted in Paris the Dom group especially, began to acquire new meaning for me. He later wrote to him that the artist should be an experimenter, seek out logical and constructive solutions, create synthetically pure forms. 
as the central tenets of Expressionism were beginning to emerge from the dregs of the nearly spent post-Impressionist style, Feininger reconsidered the role of figurative representation in art. All art was an objective output of the inner essences the artist experienced. Even figurative painting was a representation of an object that could not escape being presented through the filter of, first, the artist's sense perceptions, and second, his inner feelings, whether these be his own or the ones pressed upon him by external forces. It was the expressionist contribution to art that this aspect of the artist's personal filtration was amplified to the highest possible degree. The heavy brush strokes and extreme color contrasts in the paintings, the angular film sets, the atonal charge of Schoenberg's music, all of these developments in art would indicate a brash, new, very different universe of individual inner awareness that was bursting into the outer world, and the intent to shock, disrupt, transform, and redeem through it was both conscious and deliberate. A new world seemed to beckon, and the humdrum commissions of newspapers were so boring, so bourgeois by comparison. Feininger already had a certain amount of fame and steady pay from his cartoons, but as he wrote to his soon-to-be second wife Julia in 1907, he wanted to leave behind these clown japes that the world knows me by. As long as he remained just a cartoonist, the artist felt relatively helpless against the well-oiled machine of satirical content that he polished for mass consumption. Krauss would soon open the Heine essay we quoted earlier with these words, after all. Two strains of intellectual vulgarity. Defenselessness against content, and defenselessness against form. The one experiences only the material side of art. It is of German origin. The other experiences even the rawest of materials artistically. It is of Romance origin. To the one, art is an instrument. To the other, life is an ornament. In which hell would the artist prefer to fry. In his determination to escape the artist's defenselessness against content, Feininger had been complaining of how much imagination was drained from the illustration process. He was not getting paid to think of the jokes, but merely to execute other people's ideas. Editors would send him proscriptive notions, even small, hasty sketches, expecting him, as the good craftsman he was, to deliver according to plan. The German hell of applied craft was wearing him thin, 
and Feininger made another journey to Paris in 1911. It was at the crossroads of late Fauve and early Cubism that Feininger was able to eject himself from the craft world of graphic illustration and entered the heady delirium of the 20th century avant-garde. Having tasted the ferment of Paris, Feininger began to paint as a serious pursuit. He would rarely paint directly from his subject, but make quick sketches, using the drafting skills he had honed as a caricaturist, and then use these preliminary impressions as the triggers for his larger works. While he was in Berlin, the Secession, an exhibition group, had styled itself similarly to its Vienna namesake, and functioned independently from its own Royal Academy. Despite its edgy, outsider status, the Berlin Secession rejected submissions from a group of Expressionists. These were the members of Brücke the bohemian, sometime nudists who would fail to impress Kurt Schwitters in Dresden. Facing rejection in Berlin, the Expressionists seceded from the secession and showed their work in the Galerie der Sturm, calling themselves the New Secession. Feininger joined their organization in 1909, and it was through his connection to Der Sturm that he became acquainted with many of the artists who would later be his colleagues on the Bauhaus faculty. Itten, Clay, Kandinsky, Mucke, and Schlemmer. As the war swept over Europe, Feininger was in no danger of being drafted, something the younger artists who fought or escaped to Switzerland might have resented the older generation for. Not having lost his U.S. passport, he was, in any case, a foreign national. The Americans would enter the war late, and he was already 43 when the war declarations began. The biggest impact World War I had on his career was that a shortage of painting materials forced him to look for new creative outlets. He found one in woodcuts. Pieces of wood paper, and thick printer's ink were far easier to come by than canvases and oil paints. He would select a suitable sketch and, as with his paintings, use that earlier representation to trigger the process of reinterpreting it. As he carved out lines, this action filtered the image yet again through his perceptions and feelings so that the original outside object gained a second layer of expression through this process of interpretation, reinterpretation, and execution. As part of the Arbeitsrat für Kunst, rising in the wake of the German Revolution at the war's end, Feininger came to the attention of Walter Grotheus. The Arbeitsrat first organized in December 1918 barely more than a month after the war ended. Feininger did not sign the Arbeitsrat Manifesto, though many friends of his did. As we examined in episode 11, the Arbeitsrat wanted to bring fine art to a mass audience, 
with architecture as a leading part of the package. The Weimar Republic's constitution was not adopted until August 11, 1919, and civil war and insurrection flared up across German cities between the end of the war and the formation of the new government. Feininger wanted to leave the violence in Berlin, and wrote in March 1919 to a friend, saying, Of course, I am thinking of Weimar. He got his chance in April, when Gropius, who was himself still in Berlin, asked him to join the faculty of the newly formed Bauhaus. They traveled to Weimar together on May 18, 1918. Grotheus's 36th birthday. The painter would later remark to Grotheus that the trip had marked the beginning of the finest adventure in my artistic career, the decisive turning point of my artistic life. The only faculty members at the new school for its first few weeks, the two were alone in facing the onslaught of threatened government vetoes of funding, slights from the more conservative elements of the local art community, and trade unions worried that the Bauhaus would compete with them in the production of manufactured goods. Anti-Bauhaus factions even accused the school of promoting Bolshevik art. Though Feininger had suffered from bouts of depression before, at this school, despite, and perhaps in part because, of the bracing struggle, he would declare that, I am truly alive again, experience again, every moment of the day, all my eager senses absorb the thousands of visual experiences, again, I see the way leading upwards and forwards, as I never hoped to see it again. Yet he had not been naive about the difficulties facing the Bauhaus and the New Republic. He hoped that the reparations in the Treaty of Versailles would be removed. Looking to the future, he wrote that a beaten-down Germany, in a state of paralysis and disease in economic terms, will impoverish all of Europe. In 1922, the impact of these reparations, combined with a panicked monetary policy from the German Central Bank, sparked the infamous German hyperinflation. The Bauhaus was hit hard by this crisis, and the shock spurred the first shift in its transformation from the colorful, new humanist utopia that Expressionism championed into the bastion of technology that it is known as today. In September 1922, Julia Feininger wrote to her husband that the once tranquil, exuberant school had become a volcano ready to erupt. Her opinion of it would soon suffer further. But in those early years, the final statement of the Bauhaus Manifesto still rang in the air. Let us collectively desire, conceive, and create the new structure of the future, which will unify architecture and sculpture and painting in one 
entity and will one day rise from the hands of a million workmen as the crystalline symbol of a new coming faith. Those words seemed to serve as the jumping-off point for Feininger's woodcut The Cathedral, which became the frontispiece to the manifesto. Criticism of this effort to unify art and craft by fellow artists and architects had long since begun, and the political pressures were still ahead. But in these three short years, it could be said that the Bauhaus did attain a sort of unity. Stay tuned as we delve into Feininger's philosophical roots and into the heuristics that informed the early Bauhaus's struggle to usher in a new age. Next time on Lapsus Lima. Thank you for listening. <laughs>